Please turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 9. turn there, let me just encourage those of you who are uh, relatively new to our church, this Friday at the uh, farmhouse, and there's the maps of the farmhouse in the bulletin as well, we'll be having a kind of a, a dinner for newcomers, and it's, uh, it's hard to get to know everyone on a Sunday morning and for the, the staff and the elders and for the leadership of the church, and so uh, if you'd like a chance to kind of get together with, with some, some of the leaders in the church and, and uh, ask some really hard questions that make them sweat and things like that, or just, just enjoy the, the fellowship of spending time together. We would love uh, to get to know you better, and we would encourage you to come uh, this, this Friday night at 6 o'clock at the farmhouse, and you, there's a, in your bulletin some information about how you can uh, let, let us know you're coming so that we can have enough food. But even if you don't uh, RSVP, come anyway. We'll, we'll go without food so that you can, and we'll watch you eat. Maybe you should just call. Call ahead. But we'd love to get to spend time with you this Friday for, for newcomers. Uh, Luke chapter 9, and, and by the way, too, uh, for those of us who've, who've been here a while, I just encourage us to, to be proactively thinking of ways that we can care for our, our new visitors. And there's, there's lots of ways from where we park to, to where we sit. You know, there's, there's some really prime real estate in here, and then there's some uh, not-so-prime real estate uh, in the spray zone. Uh, the middle of the aisles, and so I just encourage you to do every, think very proactively about how you can be welcoming to those who are visiting with us. We have a lot of seats in here, uh, for example, but sometimes it's harder to get to, to some seats, and so just think of ways that we can minister to those who are, are visiting with us, and we're, if you are visiting with us again, we're just so glad that you've, you've come to worship with us this morning. Let's stand as we read God's Word together, Luke chapter 9, verses 28 through 36, the story of Christ's transfiguration. Verse 28, now about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter, and John, and James, and went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered, and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from them, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah, for he was not knowing what he said. As he was saying these things, a cloud came over and overshadowed, came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one, listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone, and they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. You may be seated, and may God encourage us through his word this morning. And let us pray. Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you that in your word we find your son Jesus Christ in his glory and his radiance, and we pray that we would worship him more completely as a result of our time together this morning. And we pray this in his name. Amen. Uh, this past week, my kids asked if we could watch a little television, and so I, we said yes, and we turned on the TV, and the television 
television show Wipeout was on, okay? Now, um, it seems like every time I turn on my television, the show Wipeout is on. Maybe I just don't turn on very frequently. But this show Wipeout, for those of you who haven't seen it, it's, uh, it's not a PBS show. This is not highbrow. Uh, Wipeout consists of contestants trying to make it through an obstacle course while being a barraged with different barriers and things like that. And they, they're essentially being knocked into the water. Okay? They're wiping out. So we've watched this show a couple of times. Uh, this past week, the kids asked if we can watch it. So we turn it on. Sure enough, lo and behold, uh, Wipeout is on. ABC must be going through some really difficulties. That's, maybe that's the only show they have in the repertoire right now. So we're watching Wipeout. It comes to the very end, and there's three contestants left, and the first two contestants go through this last obstacle course. And then the last contestant is going through the obstacle course. And as he gets to this one section of the obstacle course, these moving stairways, he, he jumps onto the stairway. The stairway alters, kind of bumps up and down, and he falls into the water. He swims over to the ladder, gets back up, and, and tries it again, and then he falls into the water again. And then a third time, falls into the water. Fourth time, the, the stairs shift, and he falls again into the water, and the camera kind of zooms in on him, and he's just, instead of swimming toward the ladder, he's just lying there on his back. The camera zooms in even further onto his face, and you can see that look in his eyes. And you know he's not going to be attempting it again. And you know the words that are going to come out of his mouth before they do. He says, I'm done. <laughs> I quit. I thought about that as I was watching that, that show and thinking about him sitting, watching it later with his friends and family and just how embarrassing that must be. What is it that causes some people to quit? What is it that causes some people to, to throw up their arms in despair and say, I, I'm done, I, I can't do this any longer? And what is it that causes other people, what is it that compels other people to, to keep on going and, and to not give up? Last week, we looked at Luke chapter 9, right before the verses we're looking at this morning, right? And last week, I made some very bold statements. And they weren't my statements, they were Jesus' statements. Very bold, audacious claims about what it looks like to follow Jesus. We talked about Jesus' terms of discipleship. And what do we see? We saw that Jesus' terms of discipleship are very costly indeed. What are we to do as we are to follow Jesus? We are to, what, deny ourselves. We're to pick up our cross daily and as we do so, we're to follow Jesus. And we talked about how we live in a culture that doesn't believe in denying self. In fact, in our culture, not only is it morally permissible to pursue your own pleasure in this world, it's like a, a moral obligation to do so. It's wrong in our culture's eyes to not be pursuing your own pleasure. And so we talked about this idea of denying self, and I got some, some great emails and comments this past week as Various ones of you mentioned how God was using this text in your life to help you deny self. For dads, perhaps, denying self means, look, I'm not going to find my accolades in work. I'm not going to find my satisfaction in my job. Instead, I'm going to find my satisfaction in Christ. And denying self for me means doing my work for God's glory and finding joy in sacrificing for others in work and in my family. A mom told me this past week, she said, you know, whenever I was younger, I had this idea that, that being a mom would not be a, a role that I could find any satisfaction in whatsoever. And then she said, 
And yet, as I think about denying myself, I find great joy in being a mom. Denying myself. For students, uh, perhaps denying self means instead of going to school and going to the cafeteria and saying, hey, look, this is my social time. I'm going to try to climb the social ladder. Instead, it means going to the cafeteria and looking around and saying, who are the people in here who are in greatest need? And how can I deny self and meet the needs of other students in my school? For single people, denial of self means, look, as I'm involved perhaps in a a relationship, instead of pursuing my own ends in this relationship, I'm going to pursue the glory of God. And I'm not going to do the things as a single person that some of my friends are doing. Instead, I'm going to deny self as I pick up my cross daily and follow Jesus. There's example after example after example that we could give of what it looks like to deny self and follow Jesus. And in our culture, that's a hard concept to grasp. That's what we looked at last week. So the question is, as we take up Jesus' challenge, his terms of discipleship, as we accept those terms of discipleship and say, yes, Jesus, I'm going to follow you, what's going to cause us to not give up? It's like a diet, right? I can start a diet in the morning and do great for an hour, and then I get a little hungry. What causes me, what causes a person in a diet to, to be able to compel themselves to not eat sweets, not just for a morning or for an afternoon, but, but for a week or two weeks, or to continue in dis- the discipline of healthy eating? What is it that's going to compel us to continue to do the things that Christ calls us to do in following after him? Is it going to be guilt? Man, I feel really bad. You know, Daniel talked about how I need to be a good disciple of Jesus. Oh, okay, I'm going to do it. Or is it just moral fortitude? I am going to do this. I am going to follow Jesus. Here I go, uh, Iron Man, right? What's going to compel us to not give up? What's going to compel us to say, Jesus, I accept your terms of discipleship, and I'm going to continue to follow you in discipleship? Let me suggest that the text this morning tells us this. One of the aspects of continuing discipleship is dependent upon contemplating the glory of the one whom we are following. What we're going to see is that contemplating the beauty of Christ compels us to obedience. Contemplating the beauty of and the splendor, and the majesty, and the glory of Jesus Christ is going to compel us to continue in obedience and discipleship. We're going to look at this story of the transfiguration. We're going to see different segments in here, and each segment is going to reveal some cause that will help us continue in discipleship. Let's look first at this heavenly appearance that we see in verses 28 and 29. Verse 28, look in your Bible with me if you would. Luke chapter 9, verse 28, it says, Now about eight days after these sayings, uh, Luke says eight day, about eight days, giving us an approximation. He's saying about a week. Matthew and Mark both say six days, and perhaps Luke is including the day of the sayings and the day of the transfiguration and giving us kind of a, look, about a week later. But the thing is, both Matthew, or Matthew, Mark, and Luke are all saying that this story of the transfiguration is linked to the events that have just occurred. 
And what have we seen in the Gospel of, of Luke chapter 9 so far? One thing that we've seen is people keep on asking, who is this Jesus guy? Herod asks it in verse 9. The crowds give an answer concerning who Jesus is through the disciples' words. Some say he's Elijah, some say he's some, some other prophet, some say John the Baptist. Peter has given an answer concerning who Jesus is. And then after Peter gives him this answer, Jesus tells more about his coming ministry. And then he lays out the terms of discipleship. And as he lays out the terms of discipleship, Jesus says this in verse 27. He says, and I tell you, truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is God's sovereign outworking of his kingdom plan in human history. And so Jesus is saying, or Luke is telling us, about eight days after this, these sayings, Jesus goes up on a mountain, probably the Mount, Mount Hermon near Caesarea Philippi. And he takes with him his inner circle, Peter, John, and James. In the Old Testament, we see some examples of God's glory becoming manifested visibly. For example, in Exodus chapter 13, 21, it says, The Lord went before the people of Israel, and by day it was a pillar of cloud, and by night in a pillar of fire. So there's this, this visible manifestation of, of God's presence, God's glory. We see this all throughout the Old Testament, different examples of, of God's glory being manifested visibly. Exodus chapter 33, Moses asks God if, if he can see his glory. And the Lord says, look, this, this very thing that you've spoken I will do for you, for you've found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Moses said, please show me your glory. And he says, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord, Yahweh, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And so the Lord places Moses in the cleft of a rock. He covers him with his hand. And then Moses is able to experience some sort of manifestation of God's presence in a special way. We see the same thing in Exodus 34. Uh, Moses comes into God's presence. He comes down off the mountain, and his face is, is shining visibly. In 2 Chronicles, as the temple is dedicated, Solomon finishes his prayer. Fire comes down from heaven. It consumed the burnt offering, the sacrifices, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. There's some sort of physical manifestation of God's glory, and the priest can't even enter the house of the Lord because of it. God's glory is a majestic thing. And Jesus Christ is fully God, and he is what? Fully man. And throughout Jesus' earthly ministry that we've seen so far in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus' humanity has been on full display. Jesus gets hungry. Jesus gets tired. Jesus sleeps. He is seen as human. And in my mind, this, this union between fully God and fully man is tenuous at best. It, it seems very hard to maintain. And yet, God, Jesus Christ has been fully God, Jesus' entire earthly ministry, and yet that glory of God that we see in the Old Testament hasn't been manifested visibly. He's done signs, he's done wonders, but it hasn't been manifested in a visible way in his actual being. And now, here on this mountain, something amazing takes place. Jesus is there. Peter, John, and James are there on the mountain as well. Jesus is praying, and Luke tells us that Jesus' face began to change. 
Matthew tells us that as his face changed, it, it shone like the sun. And not only does his face change, but his clothing changes as well. It becomes like dazzling white. And the glory of God that has always been in the person of Jesus Christ, now for the first time among his disciples, is seen in a visible form. And it's, it's not even the fullness of his holiness. It's not even the fullness of his glory. It's kind of a taste of it. His face changes. His clothing becomes dazzling white as he's praying. What would be your reaction to seeing something like this take place? What would be a normal reaction for a person to have as they see the glory of God manifested in a visible way? Fear, right? Fear would be an automatic response. You know, there's certain, certain triggers that, that take place in our life. Whenever I, I smell a certain type of, of cookie, you know, I, I think of being back in my grandmother's house. I can uh, be listening, driving my car, listening to the radio, and if that uh, Michael W. Smith song, uh, Friends, comes on, I'm all of a sudden back at my first dance in seventh grade, you know, well, it, Friends are Friends Forever. I've never seen any of those kids since, but, uh, you know, that, that song, Friends are, I'm transported back. There are certain things that, that happen that trigger certain emotions, when you behold the glory of God, what should be triggered is worship. You behold the glory of Jesus Christ, and the, the automatic response should be one of fear, reverence, awe, worship. And the response of fear and reverence and awe and worship should cause us to follow Jesus Christ in greater obedience. What do we see as we think about the heavenly appearance? We see that Christ's heavenly appearance, seeing Christ in his glory, should cause us to worship him. If you would, uh, turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. You have the Gospels, then Acts, Romans, and then the 1 Corinthians, and 2 Corinthians chapter 3. In 2 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul tells us something that is very related to what we're talking about here. He, he gives the example of Moses and how Moses had to put a veil over his face so that the Israelites wouldn't, wouldn't be uh, afraid of this glory that he, had, he was manifesting, God's glory being reflected. And then he says, uh, when one turns to the Lord, he says this in chapter 3, verse 16, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And then he says this in verse 18. And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being, what? Transformed. That's the same word that Matthew and Mark use to describe this transfiguration of Jesus. We're being changed. You and I are being transformed, Paul says, into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. As you and I go to God's word and behold the person of Jesus Christ, and respond in worship, transformation takes place. We're being transformed from one glory to another. We're becoming more and more and more like the one whom we are beholding. Worship causes us to be able to continue in discipleship and following after Jesus because we're becoming more and more and more like him. Behold the glory of Jesus Christ. It should cause you to worship, and worship gives you the ability to continue 
along that difficult road of discipleship. The heavenly appearance of Jesus causes us to worship him. Let's look at the second part of the story. We see in verses 30 and 30, 30 through 32, a heavenly witness. The heavenly witness. So here's Jesus, his appearance has been altered, and verse 30 says, And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah. Have you ever wondered why Moses and Elijah? I mean, they're obviously very prominent people in Scripture, but why not Adam and David? Uh, Why not um, Samson? Samson? That'd be a cool guy to meet, Samson. Samson and... And, and Solomon. Why Moses and Elijah? There's a lot of speculation. Some say, well, you know, Moses was the giver of the law, and, and uh, Elijah was the greatest prophet of the Old Testament, and, and perhaps that's the reason. Let me give you another reason that I think. I'm having you turn around in your Bibles a lot today, but look at the last book of the Old Testament, Malachi. In the last book of the Old Testament, Malachi, the last words of the Old Testament, the last revelation that God had given the people of Israel, We read these words the prophet Malachi wrote. These are God's words. He says in verse 4, Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. This is Malachi chapter 4, verse 4. So he says, he points back to the past. He says, remember the law. Remember the law that Moses gave you. And then in verse 5, he points to the future. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children, the hearts of the children of their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter desolation. So what I think is happening here is is perhaps this. Moses, as a representative of the Old Testament prophets, in fact, Deuteronomy, I think it's Deuteronomy 15, 18, Moses says that, that God is going to send another prophet like me. Moses, as a representative of the Old Testament prophetic ministry and the law, stands as a witness here on the mountain with Jesus saying, this is the one whom I spoke about. And Elijah, as a representative of the last days, points to Jesus and says, this is the one that I'm testifying about as well. Both Moses and Elijah are heavenly witnesses pointing to the glory of Jesus. It's kind of interesting. Peter begins to wake up, we see at some point, And he begins to understand what's taking place. Perhaps he's a little heavy with sleep and a little drowsy. But I believe that he overhears part of their conversation. And years later, decades later, he's going to write 1 Peter and 2 Peter. And listen to what Peter says in 1 Peter. In fact, before I read that, though, think again about what's happening here in Luke 9. Moses and Elijah are here. And what's the topic of their conversation? You've got Moses and Elijah, two guys, Moses who lived some 1,400 years ago, Elijah who lived hundreds of years ago, and they're, they're now back from the dead, back from being departed. Elijah was carried off in a whirlwind, but, but they're both back from the great beyond, standing on a mountain talking to Jesus, to the Son of God, to God himself. And think about all the things that Moses and Elijah and Jesus could have been talking about. Elijah could have said, hey, Moses, man, love the Pentateuch. Why didn't you ever mention dinosaurs? I would have really liked to have found out more about dinosaurs. Why didn't you mention those? 
And Moses could have been saying, hey, Elijah, the whirlwind thing, how cool was that? How did that feel? What did that look like? There's, they could have been talking about the vastness of the cosmos that, that God had, had, had revealed to them after they departed. There's all sorts of things they could have been talking about. But what is the topic of their conversation? Of all the things that these guys could have been talking about, they're talking about the central event of human history, the central event for which all of the universe was created, the cross, and God's glory revealed at the cross, the coming departure of Jesus. That's the topic of their conversation. And that's why I say, think about what Peter heard them talking about. In 1 Peter chapter 1, Peter would write this, talking about the Old Testament prophets, he says, concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours, listen, they searched and inquired carefully. They inquired to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. People who lived in the Old Testament, Moses and Elijah, engaged in ministry and had hope for the cross. Think about Moses and Elijah. Those dudes both had very difficult ministries. Moses. Moses is called by God. He's a, he's a prince of Egypt. He's called to leave that being a prince of Egypt. He becomes a shepherd. Then he's called to leave being a shepherd to go deliver his people from the hand of Pharaoh. He's called to a ministry he doesn't feel equipped to do. He's called to do a ministry that he doesn't really want to do. He's called to lead a people who don't want him to lead them. He's called to lead a group of people that at times threaten to kill him and go back to the land that he saved them from. Moses has a difficult ministry. Why does he do it? Because he hopes in God. He has a hope in God that compels him to continue in obedience and he anticipates the coming prophet, the coming Messiah, that this entire system that God establishes under him is pointing toward. Elijah has a difficult ministry as well. Elijah at, point, at one point in his ministry asks God to, to let him die. He says, God, let me die. It's enough now. Take my life. I'm no better than my father's. Yet both of them, Moses and Elijah, continue to follow Jesus Christ. They continue to follow God in obedience because of the hope that they have. And now here on the Mount of Transfiguration, Mount Hermon, as they stand here with Jesus, they're talking about what's about to take place. And can you imagine how excited they are as they think about all this time that they've waited for this event to take place? They're now on the very cusp of it. And so they're asking Jesus about it. And they're talking about it, and they're excited about this coming event, the central event of all of human history. I believe that we see Christ's heavenly appearance, and it gives us the motivation to continue in discipleship because it causes us to worship him. But I don't know about you, but I see Moses and Elijah on the mountain with Jesus, and it gives me great hope to continue in discipleship as well. Moses and Elijah had very difficult ministries, and yet they decided to follow in obedience to Christ. They, in their hope, 
was not disappointed. There's a poem that I read when I was a, a little boy for the first time, and it it kind of scared me. It filled me with, with gloom. Like, what in the world is taking place in this poem? It's The Raven by Edgar Allan Poe. Ever read that? The poem is about a, a man at, at midnight who's kind of half asleep reading some book, and he begins to think about this, this, his lost beloved Lenore. And as he thinks about her and he meditates upon her, this, this raven comes in and he believes that this raven is a, a messenger from another world, the realm beyond, to, to tell him about the uh, possibility of seeing Lenore again. At one point, at the very end of the poem, he says this to the bird, he says, Prophet, said I, thing of evil, prophet still if bird or devil, by that heaven that bends above us, by that God we both adore, tell this soul with sorrow laden, if within the distant Aden it shall clasp a sainted maiden whom the angels name Lenore, clasp a rare and radiant maiden whom the angels name Lenore, quoth the raven, evermore. He goes on and he says this, and the raven never flitting, still is sitting, still is sitting on the pallid bust of Pallas just above my chamber door. And his eyes have all the seeming of a demon that is dreaming. And the lamplight o'er him streaming throws his shadow on the floor. And the last lines of the poem. And my soul from out that shadow that lies floating on the floor shall be lifted nevermore. That phrase, nevermore. Will I be reunited with my beloved Lenore? Nevermore. My soul will be lifted out of that shadow, nevermore. Hopelessness is a powerful tool in the hands of our enemy. Hopelessness, the, the giving up hope, is a powerful tool that deceives us and causes us to not continue in discipleship, not to continue in the difficult road of obedience. And I know, I'm, I'm confident that this is, this is where some of you are this morning. You look at Luke chapter 9 and you see, deny your life, uh, deny yourself, pick up your cross daily, follow me. And, and you, you say, okay, uh, theoretically I need to do that. And then the obstacles come, the barriers come, and you say, boy, follow you in that? God, I know what your word says, but, but this situation, is, it's, I, there, it's hopeless. And if I choose to obey you, the consequences are too great. Hopelessness, defeat, is a terrible, terrible tool in the hands of God. Of our enemy. And the disciples are about to go through some terrible, terrible times. Peter, John, and James, two of the three of them are going to die martyrs' deaths. Moses and Elijah stand there with Jesus saying, guys, it is worth it. We're heavenly witnesses telling you to hope in him. Let's look at the third part of this passage, the third part of the passage, we see Peter's woken up, the others have woken up, and we see this in verse 33. The men begin to leave. The men were parting, and, and Peter doesn't want this to take place. Peter doesn't want this to take place. He says to Jesus, Master, it's, it's good that we're here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah, not knowing what he says. 
Uh, Peter's concerned that this, this beautiful experience is about to come to an end. And Peter makes this suggestion, let's build three tents. What I believe Peter's suggesting is that they celebrate what's called the, the Feast of Tabernacles. This is described, you can write down Leviticus 23, describes the Feast of Tabernacles, and adult males were to spend the week living in these tents. And, and so Peter's saying, let's celebrate the Feast of Tabernacle now, and, and we're going to build three tents, one for each of you. And Luke tells us that, G, that Peter, as he says this, doesn't know what he's saying. What does he not know? What is he not understanding? I believe that Peter is in danger of missing the entire point of this experience. Remember, Peter has been asked by Jesus, who do the crowds say that I am? And he and the other disciples have said, well, some say you're Elijah, some say you're another prophet, some say John the Baptist risen from the dead. And then Jesus says, well, who do you, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, well, you're the Christ, the, 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 the Son of God, the Chosen One. Peter understands that Jesus is different than Moses and Elijah, the other prophets, but Peter doesn't grasp how different Jesus is. Peter is in danger of making the same mistakes the crowds did by equating Jesus with just another prophet. As Peter says these words, he's afraid, he's making this suggestion, and then God the Father, in verse 34 gives his testimony concerning who Jesus is. It says, as he was saying these things, a cloud came over and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, and this is the voice of God the Father, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. Obey him. Follow him. His voice is a unique voice. His authority is a unique authority. Follow and listen to him. Follow him in the difficult road of discipleship. That's the testimony of God the Father. Herod has given his theories concerning who Jesus is. The crowd has, has given their theories. Peter has given his understanding that's limited. Now, God himself says, this is who Jesus is. The heavenly testimony should cause us to listen to him. The heavenly testimony we see here of, of point of application, we should listen to him. You say, well, Daniel, it's easy for the disciples. I mean, the disciples see Jesus in his glory. The disciples get to overhear Moses and Elijah talking to, to Jesus. Look, Daniel, I will follow Jesus in discipleship when I'm on some mountain and see Jesus and Moses and Elijah talking, a big cloud come over me, and a voice saying, listen to him. Why don't I have that? Why don't I have that experience? That would really compel me to obedience. Let me suggest this to you. No, it wouldn't. <laughs> not if your heart isn't right. Not if you don't understand what God's word is saying here. I don't know, Daniel. Stay with me. I want you to look again at what Peter wrote later. Turn with me, if you would, to 2 Peter. If you, this is toward the end of your Bible, before you get to the John's epistles, before you get to Jude or Revelation. And this is what Peter says later. 
this is probably written about, you know, late 60s A.D. This is what Peter says in verse 16 of 2 Peter chapter 1. He says, we didn't follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, as we talked about how great Jesus is, we didn't just pull this out of our heads. We didn't just make this up. He says, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. We saw the majesty of, of Jesus. And then he goes back and he gives them the example of the Mount of Transfiguration. He says, for when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven. We were with him on the holy mountain. You say, well, yeah, Daniel, you're kind of proving my point. They were on the holy mountain with Jesus. They saw this whole thing. I don't have that, that, that proof. But listen to what Peter goes on to say. And we have something more sure. The prophetic word to which you will do well to pay attention as a lamp shining in a dark place. Peter was on the mountain with Jesus. And Peter saw Jesus' glory. And, and Peter saw Moses and Elijah testifying to Jesus' coming departure. And Peter, at that moment in time, when he saw all those things taking place, didn't get it. He didn't understand it. It was only through God's special revelation that Peter was able to grasp the significance and the meaning of what he had seen. How does that impact you and me? You and I have God's heavenly testimony, the word of God. And Peter says this gives us more insight into God and his character and gives us greater certainty as to how to live than even that mountaintop experience that I had. How are you going to have hope and the ability to follow Christ in discipleship? It's first of all, looking at him, seeing the heavenly appearance of Christ. And as you contemplate his heavenly appearance, you respond in worship. And where do you find out about Jesus' appearance and his glory and his attributes? In God's word. And then you come to God's word and you see the, the hope that we have in the person of Jesus Christ. It causes you to, to hope in him and continue in those tough times in your life. Then you come to it, you come to God's word, and you read it carefully and prayerfully and thoughtfully as you listen to God's word. What do we see here in the story it's a beautiful picture of what it looks like to continue in obedience. What motivates us to continue in obedience. When I was in seventh grade, we ran the cross country for the first time. And all the, the kids got out there and we, we began uh, running these, these, uh, this course to kind of see who qualified for these, these cross country teams. What was very interesting was that the students that were the best athletes weren't necessarily the best cross-country runners, were they? There was something about a cross-country runner that had to be a, just a little bit off. 
as you con- started running, people all reached that point where they started to get tired, and the wasn't necessarily the good athletes who kept running. It's very hard. Even as a seventh grader, I'd never seen anything quite like it, and it, it began to help me understand, look, there's, there's just something within some people that compels them to continue on when other people fall away. The Christian life, what causes us to continue is not an inner motivation. It's not this moral fortitude. It's not this guilt complex. What causes us to continue along the difficult road of discipleship and obedience is contemplating the glory of Jesus Christ, his majesty, his splendor. That's what motivates us. Like the men who are going to be passing out the communion elements to prepare to do so, as they get ready to do so, I'd like each of us to just spend a few moments in quiet contemplation and, and prayer. As they prepare to, to pass out the elements, I want you to, to ask this question of yourself. Uh, what is causing me to consider not continuing discipleship? What, is it, what are the barriers in my life that are becoming so real and, and so great and, and so awesome that I'm tempted to not follow Christ in discipleship? Maybe it's a, a situation with a family member or a friend. Or, what is it? Just kind of think through that together for a moment. I want you to close your eyes and just bow your heads for a moment. Then I'm, I'm going to pray, and, and then the men are going to, to pass out the elements. And, and as they even continue to pass out the elements, I'd encourage you to as you think about those things that may be tempting you to not continue in discipleship, you would ask God to reveal those things to you and, and cause you, cause you to, to uh, choose to be obedient to him. Let's close our eyes for a moment. And Father, we thank you for your word that we can listen to and see Jesus in. We pray that you would compel us to greater obedience, and we pray that as we prepare to partake of communion, we would be again reminded of your presence in all of your sacrifice and entranced by your great beauty. We pray this in your son Jesus' name. Amen.